the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome to part two of a very special Christmas Bisberg, sponsored by Geneva College, a behind-the-scenes look at Christmas with Professor Jonathan Watt. He's Professor of Biblical Studies and Linguistics at Geneva College and a part-time professor at RPTS, the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Mike Howard, and Jonathan, it's good to be back with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And I'm going to take us right where we left off in part one, and that is back mm-hmm. into the manger scene with the the baby Jesus being born. But let's not forget to talk for a minute about Emmanuel, God with us. What does this mean mm-hmm. that God condescended to our level to become human as well as God and where this is going to take the world? You know, the angle I often think of in that very, very matter, Mike, is actually the one that's given in the opening of Philippians, where Mm. it talks about Jesus uh, giving up, uh, I'll I'll paraphrase just a little bit, giving up the privileges of heaven and um, being willing to come in a uh, humble situation, uh, one in which, um, well, he's giving up his privileges, and therefore uh, he's subject to a lot of risks. Uh, as well as the opportunities that come with the Incarnation, made himself of no repute, is what one person has translated that passage of in Philippians, uh, not giving up his divinity, but giving up the, uh, as I like to put it, cleanness, purity, mm-hmm. wholesomeness of heaven, and stepping into the complexities and sometimes just the messes of human existence. And to me, that's uh, uh, that, that's the heart of the incarnation. Uh, uh, you know, so, sometimes we say uh, uh, religions invite people to sort of rise above their suffering or deny suffering, uh, but in the, in the case of, of Jesus, he stepped into our suffering and joined with us and was born in uh, humble circumstances, to say the least. To be, I don't know any human being today who's been uh, laid down to sleep in, a, in an animal feeding trough. Uh, but yeah. that's what he got, a simple life to a, to a simple family that was uh, able to make a living from carpentry, or, or, or I should probably say just building uh, things that might have included carpentry. Um, and and he, he just lives in a normal human life, at least normal for that uh, society at that time, um, and gave up everything that was, as we say today, cushy. Right. It's uh, the beauty of heaven. He sets aside temporarily for us. And uh, boy, how appreciative we need to be of that, not just at Christmas time, but all year long. And we may get into that a little bit before the show is over. But I did want to ask you, this is always kind of of a thought to me, because I I love the Gospel of John. It's one of my life study books. And when you think about John 114, that Jesus, you know, dwelt with us, tabernacled with us, I don't know that people really look at that little section of John as kind of a Christmas narrative, because there's not, you know, story, his story, but it's so rich. I've kind of almost called that the third Christmas narrative. Can you tell us a little, just a little bit about that section of the Gospel of yeah, John? Because it always we always talk about Matthew and Luke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do, and, and we should include John because, of course, he is he is alluding to that very fact. 
Um, I like to put John again. My my metaphor is cosmic zoom. Hmm. You know, starts way out in the cosmos in eternity, and then brings him, uh, if you will, lands him on the ground with us. Uh, you know, the true light uh, comes into the world, even though the world that he helped make didn't know him. Right, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, and the word became flesh. And again, if I could take a translation with just a little bit of liberty, he pitched his tent mm-hmm. in our midst. Uh, tabernacle is a temp- temporary dwelling, right. and he did that uh, to be in our midst and experience the kinds of things um, that we experience. Uh, he certainly had the joys of of going to parties, and he had the immense sadnesses that we often talk about in terms of embracing uh, people's uh, tragic circumstances and eventually being subject to uh, horrible mistreatment and death himself. But that's, that's stepping into human existence. Well, and since we're in the Gospel of John for a second, I'll allude to another chapter, but I want you to take us back into Luke to tell us a little bit about, and that's the thought of the shepherds. We know in John 10, what great theologies in John 10 about the good shepherd, but the Lord loved his shepherds, and we have those in play here. Tell us a little more about now that the child Jesus is born, what's going to happen next in this narrative that people should be thinking about? Well, it's interesting because what happens next, we, we might say, is counterintuitive. Uh, you've, got, you've got, on the one hand, uh, someone who is born who is so unique and significant in ways that, uh, that, that we've talked a little bit about, and the Bible talks a lot about, and he's recognized by these uh, characters from the East, these magi who recognize him. Mm-hmm. But the other, the other side to it is um, he, he's born into a humble family of, of basic uh, survival, and then the message coming to the shepherds, the shepherds were low on the totem pole, social totem pole, um, that they weren't people with, with great regard. Um, there are some traditions from ancient times that suggest that if you want someone to give testimony at a legal process, don't go to a shepherd for it. Mm. Uh, in the eyes of some, they're untrustworthy. They're the, the, the lowest workers, the most basic people who take care of animals, and, and, and at least in the eyes of some in those days, not people uh, worth considering. And here's the message of the gospel coming uh, you know, from, from first one angel and then many angels joining in the song um, and doing it to, to shepherds. Uh, this is, of course, in the middle part of Luke chapter 2. Mm-hmm. Um, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. Uh, that's the message of the angels. And the shepherds say, well, let's then go and find out what this is all about. Uh, it doesn't tell us how they did this, but they, they quickly uh, somehow located Mary and Joseph uh, in the vicinity of this town, not city back then, but mm-hmm. town uh, with an ancient history, lying in the manger, and, uh, and that's, the, that's the evidence that they've been told something pretty amazing. When they leave, glorifying and praising God for all they'd seen and heard. Um, so they're people who were absolutely responsive to the fact that God was speaking to them. It's a wonderful thing. You're listening to a very special Christmas Bizberg, sponsored by Geneva College. I am your host, Mike Howard, and our guest is Professor Jonathan Watt of Geneva College, helping us get a little behind-the-scenes look. Uh, Jonathan, one of the things I don't think we noted, but um, I like to you know, throw one little curve at you, maybe. There was at least one angry king during all of this, wasn't there? Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about him and what was happening? Yep. So what we call Herod the Great... 
was what's known as a client king to Rome. Uh, he's a local. He is by, by family origins from Edom or Idumea, and his, his family has converted to Judaism uh, in the previous generation. And so uh, as some, some people have called him a plausible Jew, in other words, by, con, by conversion. Uh, however, however, roughly four decades before the birth of Jesus, he enters into an agreement with Rome. And it's one of these uh, we might call pork barreling. Uh, you know, somebody gets something out of this. What what Rome gets out of it is their man Herod on the ground, who who knows the territory uh, from Rome's point of view is one of them. This is Rome looking over towards Middle Eastern Jews, um, and and therefore Rome will legally and if necessary militarily support his meaning Herod's leadership. He's a client king. What Herod gets out of it, of course, is the the leadership role he wants, the power, and the, the, the connections that, that he, he wants to sustain in order to keep himself and his family in power. He's actually the first of a line of leaders that will be in position for approximately, well, almost one and a half centuries. Uh, but he is the first of this. And, of course, he's upset uh, because he's getting these reports now from these magi that someone who's king of the Jews has shown up, uh, and he is he is legitimately concerned and illegitimately paranoid, mm-hmm. and so he's determined to eliminate uh, any possible uh, rivalry to his his kingship, his client kingship. Uh, we know from from other reports, particularly from the uh, Jewish historian Josephus, uh, Herod on the one hand clearly is brilliant, but on the other he can be deadly, and he he is someone who does not hesitate to kill one of his ten wives. He has her strangled. He kills a couple of his children. He kills an uncle and some other relatives. And in fact, uh, when his own death is approaching, which is some months, we don't know how many months, but some months after the birth of Jesus, uh, he has a command that says uh, Jewish leaders are to be locked up uh, in a stadium in Jerusalem. And when he dies, they are to be slaughtered. So that it, it would be as if Jerusalem is is mourning the loss of Herod, even though not really. Uh, by the way, when he does die, um, they do not carry through the slaughter that he intended. Uh, many don't know that Herod has a fortress within sight of Bethlehem. The fortress is known as the Herodion, hmm. um, and the Herodion is, a, is an enlarged hillside that was turned into a very impressive fortress. It's actually where Herod chooses to be buried. So the the walk or run from this fortress, by the way, it makes a fascinating place to visit today. It's been mm-hmm. archaeologically excavated. Uh, you can see a lot. We won't talk about the details right now, <laughs> but it is located practically in the backyard of Bethlehem. So when he sends out soldiers uh, later to accomplish that bloody slaughter of children, uh, it's not that Jesus has been around for two years, but it's let's play it safe and kill any child up to the early toddler stages. Um, the soldiers presumably are being dispatched from that fortress. Uh, could have been Jerusalem, but probably that fortress at the Herodian, uh, which is just, well, within, within less than an hour, you could get a soldier from that place into the environs of uh, Bethlehem. 
Fascinating. You're listening again to a very special Christmas Bisberg sponsored by Geneva College. And our guest is Professor Jonathan Watt for a behind the scenes Look, now I know, Jonathan, one of the things you were excited to talk to our listeners about, and I do want to remind them if they've caught it in the middle, missed part one, whatever, you can find it at pittsburghpodcast.com. We'll have the both shows up there for a while. You wanted to talk a little bit about the traditions, some from the Roman English, yes. American angles. Yes. I wanted to, to give you the floor yes. to, to give us some insight there and, and, as I say, educate us a little. Well, Sure. Uh, it, it's an interesting um, long sequence and meandering sequence of development in terms of how, how do we get um, Christmas as we know it today. And I'm talking about the public side of things. Mm. Uh, you know, there's on the one hand one, one, one's individual and, and, if you will, privately held faith, and that's that's a very critical piece of being a Christian. But there's also the the, the public. Uh, habits and traditions ranging from weekly worship, which has been shared throughout history, uh, Christian history, to then what we would call the liturgical calendar. Um, Protestants, for, to a large, to a large degree, don't observe a formal. Most do not observe a formal liturgical calendar, though some do. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been more apparent in the uh, the Western Church, which was early on centered at Rome. Eastern Church, uh, which is centered, at, was centered at Constantinople. Um, in the early centuries of, of Christendom, there was not tremendous interest in when exactly Jesus was born. Um, and what's interesting is uh, the, the, we know when he died, at least in one sense. We know that he dies in connection with the Jewish Passover. Mm-hmm. And we know the Passover, albeit fluctuating somewhat in its lunar calendar, uh, generally takes place March or April. So to say that as long as we link uh, Easter with with uh, Passover, we, we've got the, the 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 calendar part down there. But in terms of the birth of Jesus, that that's a very interesting piece. Mm. Um, in the fourth century, the Church starts to ask about these kinds of things. By the way, including uh, lining up the multiple calendars of different regions, and that's a whole story in terms of how do we get the B.C.A.D. Mm-hmm. Uh, division, and I'll, I'll leave that to the side for now. <laughs> but um, a number of uh, churches uh, in the 4th century start to choose the date of December 25th. And, and it, why they do this, by the way, the Eastern churches and some of the smaller uh, subsets of Protestants will uh, recognize January 7th. And there's a there's a historical calendar reason for that that departure, uh, which again I won't I won't trouble anybody with right now. Um, but this December 25th date, the question is why, uh, given the fact that the New Testament does not give us any information, nothing reliable uh, to to go on in terms of which of the roughly 365 and a quarter days of the year mm-hmm. uh, we could choose. Um, we, we just we just don't have it, but. Uh, the the December twenty fifth date seems to have been chosen uh, by uh, by Roman Christians as a way of offsetting attention to the worship of the god Saturn at an annual holiday uh, 
basically regarded all through the month of what we would call December, uh, called Saturnalia. It was a very hedonistic uh, wild food and drink and everything else kind of time where social order was even uh, being questioned. Mm. Uh, you know, peasant, peasants were considered the great ones and the wealthier were or considered the lower ones, at least in a playful way, during that time. And so one of the ways to take attention away from that, or away from uh, Mithra, who was the god of the unconquerable sun, which was also being recognized at this time, uh, is to give a Christian substitute uh, that can take the attention away from the one and, and, and uh, slip it over to the other. And that seems to be uh, what is going on. Uh, we know that uh, so- somewhere uh, around the third, uh, sorry, late third and fourth century, this is being talked about, and Christmas celebrations seem to take place in Rome uh, sometime in the 330s. That's, okay. a, that's a tentative kind of a thing, uh, which means for the previous 300 years, not so much interest in it, which, which is interesting. Um, and then what happens is, uh, it's not without interest, don't get me wrong, but at least it's minimal till then, and then you have great interest in it as, as a way of saying, look, you know, the pagans may have their uh, calendar dates to recognize. Uh, of course, Mar- uh, December 21st is the, the, the winter solstice, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, nine months after March 25th. Uh, some suggested, you know, March 25th, when we start to begin to bring in the, the new warmer weather, uh, we, we have a date that might be connected with the conception of Jesus, so let's add nine months to that and come to this date of December 25th, which also conveniently is a nice rival to the Feast of Saturnalia. So the, these kinds of interests, they're what we call cultural interests. You know, the, the Gospel is always in somebody's culture. Uh, it seems to be uh, that that was the that was the concern. Um, even and I was surprised. I did a little bit of checking. You know, um, I was surprised to read that um, even uh, Saint Augustine, fourth century, late fourth century Saint Augustine, uh, argues uh, for December twenty fifth, uh, allegedly at least, as a as a fitting date in which to remember the the birth of Jesus. So there certainly have been some some strong religious. Uh, both religious movements in terms of let's bring attention to this, as well as religious movements of let's take attention away from uh, something else. Uh, these seem to have played a, a role in in the growing interest of, of Christmas as as an event, uh, we'll say loosely, similar to what uh, what we have today. By, by the way, mm-hmm. um, other Christians around those times suggested other times of the year, so it's not that everybody agreed on this by any means. Um, but uh, other people have, uh, throughout throughout the what we call patristic era were making different kinds of arguments. Uh, one one writer of the third century, Christian writer, uh, suggested that since allegedly March twenty fifth was the day of creation, uh, it was also therefore fitting to be the day of the conception of Jesus at the nine months once again, and you're coming to the end of December. But of course, we don't know that March 25th was the date of creation uh, either. So I'm, I'm sort of giving these as uh, out, of, out of respect for the people of the past, but uh, politely uh, disagreeing. I think most of us would disagree today with feeling anything uh, uh, you know that has, has to be taken from that. Um, 
and then what happens is uh, there's developments over subsequent centuries. So uh, Charlemagne, when he is uh, coronated king of the Holy Roman Empire in, in 800, he's going to be coronated on Christmas Day, uh, uh, giving a greater status to that. Um, the, the very word Christmas, by the way, comes from the word Christ's Mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, meaning, uh, uh, you know, t- time of worship of the Messiah, uh, celebration of the Lord's Supper with that as well. Um, and so in Middle English, we have, we have the word Christen Massa, uh, meaning Christian Mass, and that Christen Massa, uh, shortened down, gives us Christmas, as we pronounce it, Christmas. Um, sometimes people see Christmas abbreviated as Xmas, and the reason that originates is that the X uh, is actually representing the Greek letter chi, mm-hmm. and it is pronounced with a ch rather than a k. Um, and like Johann Sebastian Bach, it would be the, the sound that you get for that. Gotcha. Uh, the chi is the starting of the, uh, the first letter of the Greek word Christos, Christ, mm-hmm. uh, which of course is the counterpart to the Hebrew Mashiach, or Messiah. So that's the... That's the um, uh, uh, the connections for the words there. Uh, people often call this the time of Yule, okay? Uh, it, oh, it's from a Greek, excuse me, an Old English word, uh, Yola, uh, Yule, which just means uh, sort of the, the end of the, 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 for, the former year and the beginning of the new year, and therefore it gets connected with what has at that point been established as Christian Christmas. And the, the word Noel, Noel, um, is from a French word uh, related to uh, the word for nativity uh, or birth. So uh, the words that we use, which often are not known in terms of meaning today, uh, actually have those kinds of connections um, with 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 uh, these words. So um, by the Middle Ages, uh, Christian uh, recognition of Christmas is fairly well ensconced and, mm. and practiced by uh, civil leaders, and of course, uh, in those times, uh, what was civil was very close to what was ecclesiastical. So uh, the separation that we experience today between, as we say, between church and state, uh, not quite what they were uh, uh, experiencing uh, back then. It was a closer relationship between the two. And so over over the subsequent centuries, other developments take place. I won't mention all of them, but a couple that might uh, let people know how things came to be as we know it uh, today. Um, with uh, the rise of Protestantism, you know, in the 17th century, um, uh, particularly in England, uh, Christmas was sort of in and out of favor. Uh, it was even for a time, uh, it was sort of pro- uh, proscribed, in uh, in England, um, some of the Puritans in America not very uh, supportive of it either, um, for reasons that uh, well basically were seen as being too too uh, too Catholic or too Eastern, um, and and so they preferred to keep a distance from that. Um, England eventually ended its ban. By the way, its ban goes back in the 1600s when they and Christmas, uh, Christmas mm. uh, celebrations, at least yeah. for a time. And then in colonial America, um, there was a time when there was also in the 17th century a revocation of the, um, of the uh, recognition of Christmas also. But the, uh, you know, whatever people think pro or con, all I'm showing is that it's a 
very mixed kind of a story. Uh, the pros and the cons, the arguments for, the arguments against, have, have always been lively. And a couple of interesting things, if I could, do I have time for just a, a few more minutes sure. here? Yeah, we've got a few uh, minutes left. The, okay, good. I'll, 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 I won't fill them all. But a couple of interesting things have helped Christmas take on the shape that we recognize uh, today. Um, one of them is the the uh, uh, the story of uh, people ask what about who is this Saint Nicholas? Mm-hmm. Well, Saint Nicholas was uh, a saint who lived in Turkey. Well, we know today as Turkey, late third and into fourth century, who was known as being a very wealthy person who sort of renounced it and then committed his life to uh, caring for the poor and the sick, and particularly for children. And so in the um, uh, Scandinavian tradition, particularly Dutch, um, uh, St. Nicholas, now I'm not native Dutch speaker, so I'm going to butcher this a little bit, uh, but he was pronounced something like uh, Sint or Sinta Niklas. And you you shorten Sinta Niklas to Sinta Klaas, mm-hmm. and you are pretty close to what we recognize as Santa Claus, uh, the person who gives gifts particularly to children. So people are wondering how that developed. It was a, it's a cultural development, uh, not a specifically biblical one, and that gets associated with Christmas. Um, in the United Kingdom, uh, Christmas Day was considered a banking holiday in the 19th century, um, and many British people, by the way, my British heritage, I was brought up with this as well, mm-hmm. uh, Boxing Day uh, was added in the latter part of the 19th century. That was the day after after Christmas, the idea being focus on Jesus on Christmas, mm-hmm. and then you could focus on your gifts uh, the next day. And uh, to that end, uh, things like the uh, development in the 19th century of the sending of Christmas cards, uh, that seems to come about in the latter third of the 19th century in America. And in America, Christmas was formally declared a federal holiday, not until 1870. So we could say it's, uh, as as, as an institution, a national institution, it's about a century and a half old. It's uh, sort of new. 150 years, huh? That's it. Well, Jonathan, we really really appreciate you being with us. Thank you. It's been. Uh, it, we could probably do a third part, and maybe I should have done that. But we want to thank you and thank Geneva College for the special behind-the-scenes look at Christmas on this uh, Bisberg time. So, Jonathan, thank you very much, and we'll hope to talk to you again. Mike, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening.